This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Patrick Ryan, author of four novels, three of which are for young adults, and one short story collection. He also writes nonfiction and has received a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in fiction, and he is also the contributing editor of One Story and editor of One Teen Story. His latest short story collection is called The Dream Life of Astronauts, which features nine stories, all taking place around Cape Canaveral in Florida. The central time period is the 1970s, although some of the stories go back and forward a few decades. They feature independent kids, has-beens, single mothers, boy scouts, busybodies, and sexual misconduct. Ryan's wit adds a sharp humor to the collection and a very visceral sense of place. We began the discussion focusing on why this area of Florida has captured his attention. Well, I grew up there. I grew up in right near Cape Canaveral. And so for my entire childhood, this big industry, this one big industry was in the background and sometimes in the, in the foreground. And so all of the things that might seem exotic to somebody from the outside, you know, from the inside, of course, it was just mundane and routine. Um, we moved down there to Florida from well, I guess the Washington DC area in 1968 or seven. And my parents both got jobs at NASA. Uh, my mother was a secretary and my dad checked out camera equipment to the photographers. And, and we watched the moon launches either from our front yard or, you know, just anywhere we were because we were so close. You'd just look up and boom, there the thing will be going up into the sky. So I always, and it was, and it, but around that it's, it's a, it's just a tiny little town and it's an island where I grew up called Merritt Island, but you wouldn't even know it was an island because it just looks like you're in this little town. So I'd been writing stories over the years that were set there that didn't really have directly to do with NASA, but had to do with just the community and with, with one big industry in the background and then one big industry that started to fade out. And that happened that that directly affected my my family and that my parents both saw uh, co-workers getting laid off right and left in around 1973 and 4 and so they bailed out and pursued different things and then the industry sort of petered for a while and then came back with the space shuttle and then that petered out so the 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 book is actually set it spans about 40 years because the earliest story is 1969 and and then the most recent one is closer to now, uh, and there are a few re- recurring characters, but mainly I I just I like the idea of just diving into one central location and and investigating the lives uh, of of these small town folks. Did you feel that growing up there, and then consequently in your story, 
And as you said, it's really in the backdrop. You know, you don't have anyone going up into space in your stories, but that it felt like kind of out of time there because nowhere else in America were you sending things up into the universe. And so in that way, it probably seemed kind of futuristic, but then on the ground, you're just dealing with all the same things that people were dealing with in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It's, it's really funny to me because when I, when I think about growing up there, there was, there was nothing kind of magical. There was no comparison of, oh, look what's going on right over there and look what we have here. Because I was a kid and I, I had uh, nothing, to, nothing else to compare it to. So it was just the way things were. And at the same time, my, I don't know if I'm exactly answering the question, but you just made me think of this. Uh, we were, you know, we were pretty poor, so to speak. I mean, nothing was repossessed, or, <laughs> but we were, we were on the low end of things and just renting a little house. And we didn't, we didn't have a decorated house and we didn't have anything to hang on the walls, really. So what we hung on the walls were all of these free photos of the astronauts and you know the capsules with the orange and white parachutes bringing them down onto the ocean and hanging behind my television the entire time I was growing up was this big photo of Neil Armstrong saluting the American flag on the moon and and then just these trio portraits of astronauts and they're hanging around but we didn't I really it didn't feel like we cared about it you know what I mean it's not like we took pride in it it's just that we didn't have anything else to hang on the walls and if my mother will hear this, she'll she'll wince. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting when I look back on it now because it's not like we were so entranced, and it's not like we saw it as this escape or some promise of a better life. Look, we can go to the moon. We can get. It's just it was just the texture that was available. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Patrick Ryan, author of five books, including the short story collection, The Dream Life of Astronauts. He joined me via Skype. One thing I noticed that kind of ran throughout these stories, and I don't know if part of it is the time period you're talking about, um, especially the stories that take place in the 70s. But it seems like you have a lot of absent parents. They're either physically kind of, they're just kind of checked out. They don't necessarily know what their kids are doing or they have no power over their kids. And that happens in a lot of stories. Can you talk about that? I always think that there are two, as a writer, there are two questions that people will ask a writer. And from my comfort zone, I'm always thinking, don't ask me like you tell me. I don't want to be the one to answer that. And one of them is something just as, as, as simple as, as what you just said is like subject matter. You're drawn to this kind of subject matter. Um, why do you think that is? And I, I always feel like I never decided that that's what I wanted to be drawn to. And the other thing is theme. Uh, and, and I think your question kind of addresses theme too. The sort of, sort of themes that emerge in, in writing. And I never, ever think about theme because I want to see it in the rearview mirror. I don't want to see it. I couldn't really write if I if I were get, if I was getting preoccupied with what kind of a theme I wanted to what kind of message I wanted to get across. So I think the honest answer is that I'm just drawn to the uh, the kind of world that that I saw and experienced myself and um it's not that I it's not that I had 
an unhappy childhood at all. I did have um, a father who was checked out a lot. My, you know, my parents weren't weren't so uh, uh, happy as a couple, <laughs> and and it's not that they fought all the time. But I definitely was aware, even at the early age of like seven or eight or nine, I was aware that these two people didn't really seem to enjoy each other's company. <laughs> And, and so then I just started observing my, my other friend's parents and I realized, oh, a lot of these, a lot of these, my friend's parents are divorced and his dad lives, my parents did not get divorced during my childhood, so I didn't have that experience, but I, I would just realize, oh, his dad lives four blocks over or you know, his mom doesn't live here, she lives on the mainland and and watching all that negotiation going on and then and then I realized as I got, when I got to be older, I realized that I was, uh, what, what, I don't know if you call me a love child, but I was, uh, you know, I was conceived, I was sort of the cause of the marriage, so to speak. And, and so that got me thinking about what it would be like to have something like a child suddenly create a marriage that wouldn't otherwise have been. And does that, does that translate into the idea of a trap? Or does it translate into the idea of just stepping up to the occasion? You know, rising to the occasion and saying, okay, I'm going to suit up. This is the situation. Now here we are. And, and I think the line is really fuzzy between those two. And I think that the, the truth lies between those two. Is that often families are created because of situations that start kind of as traps or, you know, unintentional snags or something. And then what people do with that uh, really shapes entire lives and, and uh, relationships and dynamics that go on for, for decades, right? So let's talk about some specific stories. My favorite in the book was Miss America. Would you like to give a brief summary of it for our listeners who might not have read it? It's a story about a 16-year-old girl who's living in this small town who has ambitions to be, ultimately, to be Miss America. She wants to go into beauty pageants. She wants to be, she realizes, she's kind of a realist. She realizes there are stepping stones. There's, there will be Miss Brevard County. There will be Miss Florida. There will be Miss America. And she just, she wants to go there. And she has become pregnant. And she's told her best friend, she's told the father, this guy she was dating, and the person that she's holding off telling is her mother because her mother is this loose cannon. And so the story kind of works toward her finally coming to her own decision about what to do with her pregnancy and then telling her mother and being surprised by the way her mother reacts to it. So the main character's name is Danny. And her best friend is named Emerald. And Emerald is more precocious than than Danny. And she finds this guy named Derek who is sort of like an agent who they think is going <laughs> to sort of get them ahead in the pageant world and the modeling world. And they go to his house and he's older and offers them drinks. And at one point, Danny discovers that he is a child. What was the sort of thrust of the story f for you in terms of where you started and where you ended. The background of this is that <clears throat> when I was 15, I had a best friend at that time, and she lived two houses down, and we spent 
every afternoon after school together. She was a year older than me or two years older than me. And we spent all of our time, all of our free time together. We just got along. We were pals. And she became pregnant. And for a while, everyone, everyone initially was just utterly convinced that it was mine. And and then after a while, after I was able to convince the people in my immediate life, like my parents, that it wasn't mine, it couldn't possibly be mine, um, and her parents and our best friends, after we you know, sort of got everybody's head wrapped around that, there was still the surrounding community of neighbors who thought that this child was mine and I just wasn't owning up to it, even after the kid was born. And so, but, and I watched her go through lots of stages of getting advice from people and the the thing that I noticed was a lot of people were advising her to get rid of it uh, of, the, of the child and and she was so sensible and practical about this that she realized right away that this was not just a, a quick decision let's just think about it you know there's a it wasn't a matter of pro-life pro-choice it wasn't anything like that it was just well let, you know, let's just think about this and carry this through and decide what I want to do. And that's what she did. And I, I still, to this day, I admire her for this. And so for years and years and years, I thought, I want to write a story about, from the perspective of a kid like me, who has this best friend. But then the more I started thinking about and outlining the story, and then I realized, I remembered this character, and this this character, Derek, that you mentioned there was this guy, and he I don't remember his name, he was really, really creepy, he was older. We would hang out with him at Denny's, because we would go to Denny's in the afternoon and have coffee. I mean, this is the kind of kids we were. We did not party. We never drank. We, you know, we, just, we had coffee and pie, and hung around and talked in Denny's. And there was this guy who was always there, and he offered, he brought us over to his house one day. It was surrounded by all of these pornographic uh, um, ceramics, which I put into the story. And it, so that made it extra creepy. His house was kind of nasty. And he basically offered to give her the money for an abortion. And, and I always wondered, you know, in, in exchange for what? Like what, what was he getting out of that? It had to just be that he wanted her to be beholden to him in this general way. It's just so, so strange. And she decided, you know, not to take that route. And she she had this child, and uh, and then later she got married to a guy who welcomed this child. And I think they had another child, and they're happily married. And it's got a you know, it's got a good ending. Um, I I realized when I finished the story that I I had written a story about a teenager who gets pregnant and chooses to have the baby, but that I had written actually a pro-choice story. Does that make sense? Yeah, it like, does. I did, but I'd I didn't like to set know out more. to write a pro-choice story or a pro-life story. You know, I'm, 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 I don't get into politics blatantly in fiction, you know. Uh, but I realized when I got done that I, that I had written this story. It was actually a pro-choice story about, about a m woman who makes the decision to keep the baby. 
Yeah, there was some great dialogue in there. One thing <laughs> I noticed throughout many of your stories is that they are really funny. And they're funny in one-liner ways. And I'm wondering if you really work hard to craft your humor, if it just comes out as part of your personality. But I just wanted to ask you about the element of humor in your stories. It just comes out. It, I, don't, I don't work toward the punchline. I don't write toward the punchline. I've read some humorous fiction, you know, fiction intent, intending to be humorous. And I can sometimes feel it writing toward a punchline. And to me, it feels similar to, to watching a stand-up comic. And watching a stand-up comic and listening to a stand-up comic is great. But that is all about, you know, you're sitting there leaning forward, waiting for the punchline. And, and that's a totally different experience. And so... I just, I find, I don't know, I don't know where it comes from in me, but life is pretty hard. You know, the average day can have tons of challenges. Uh, I live in New York City and, you know, you leave the house and walk down the block and you've encountered seven or eight people that you would never want to necessarily interact with and they wouldn't want to interact with you, but you're all sharing the same space. And so my brain is just always kind of trying to, trying to see what's amusing, you know, trying struggling to be generous in the way I look out at other people in the world and then trying to see what's funny and just just keeping it all to myself, you know, not laughing at people, but really finding things that other people might find amusing and that kind of thing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Patrick Ryan, author of five books, including the short story collection, The Dream Life of Astronauts. He joined me via Skype. Okay, let's talk about the um, title story, The Dream Life of Astronauts. I felt like this was the most astronauty. He never quite made it up into space, poor guy. Uh, his name is Clark Evans, and he's he he's kind of reminds me of like a washed up has been, but he never really had been. Um, <laughs> but he was close. He he knew astronauts, and he was one, but he just didn't get to go into space. And you have Frankie, and he is kind of obsessed with this astronaut, and he befriends him. It's also strange because Frankie's like what like sixteen. Yeah, he's sixteen. Just for a basic <laughs> plot summary, this will sound kind of twisted but so he meets this ex-astronaut at, who's giving a talk at a library and it's a very very tiny lackluster affair with a very small audience and he's but he's 16 and he's obsessed with UFOs he's obsessed with space flight he's obsessed with aliens coming and so when he meets this astronaut he really wants to talk about the various reports of of astronauts who actually went up into space who saw things uh, that were unexplainable, that they thought were UFOs. He's also, in, in his character bio, this character sort of spontaneously came out of the closet two years before this, although this is not in this book, it's in another book, at 14. So, you know, to him, the idea that he's kind of attracted to this man is not an issue. It's not a, it's not a, troublesome thing. And so when this guy kind of takes the shine to him and says, well, I can take you on this tour of the Space Center if you want, he's, of course, he's on board for this. Clark Evans has an entirely different motivation, which is basically just to lure him into an intimate setting with his wife uh, in this kind of twisted up three-way. 
one of the things that Frankie, I felt that this story did was um, it reiterated to him his sexuality. And um, mm-hmm. I think there was disappointment there, but he did get something out of it. He took something from Clark. He, he steals Clark's moon rock, a little piece of the moon. And that was kind of a late decision in the story because, and that was another one that I, I'd worked on for a long time. And then when I was getting toward the end, I thought, well, what, it, you know, it felt like it was missing the piece, the story itself. The stories are always about clashing motivations and the world you want as opposed to the world you're stuck in and this kind of thing. So obviously Clark wanted something entirely different. And I got very, very interested in the character of Clark's wife, uh, who has a name that still cracks me up, and I can't remember why I even named her Pepper, but her name is Pepper, and still kind of makes me chuckle. But she turns out to be really nice, generous, sensible person. I mean, she's part of this whole seduction, but then once she sees that it's not really going, once she sees that not everybody in the room is on board, she's pulling the plug on it. Say what you might about a woman who would be doing what she's doing in the first place. <laughs> um, I think that speaks well of her. You know, one, once it dawns on her that Frankie's not really into this particular scenario that they've envisioned, then she's like, nope, okay, it's not going to happen. But it didn't feel like enough of an ending. And so having him on the way out just swipe that moon rock goes kind of against his character because I never would have thought that he would be the character, kind of person who would steal something from somebody. And for all that I've written about him, and I've written about him in various points of his life. I've written about him as an infant, and I've written about him as an 89-year-old man in different stories, and and in, in a teenager in middle age. And he doesn't do anything like that anywhere else. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Patrick Ryan, author of five books, including the short story collection, The Dream Life of Astronauts. He joined me via Skype. Can you share a passage from an author that influenced you? Yes. I picked the opening to a short story by Raymond Carver called Chef's House. And I think this is the only part I'll read is just the first paragraph because I think it's amazing what this first paragraph does. That summer, Wes rented a furnished house north of Eureka from a recovered alcoholic named Chef. Then he called to ask me to forget about what I had going and to move up there and live with him. He said he was on the wagon. I knew about that wagon, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. He called again and said, Edna, you can see the ocean from the front window. You can smell salt in the air. I listened to him talk. He didn't slur his words. I said, I'll think about it. And I did. A week later, he called again and said, are you coming? I said, I was still thinking. He said, we'll start over. I said, if I come up there, I want you to do something for me. Name it, Wes said. I said, I want you to try and be the Wes I used to know, the old Wes, the Wes I married. Wes began to cry, but I took it as a sign of his good intentions. So I said, all right, I'll come up. It tells you in one paragraph, it does some obvious things. It establishes two characters, uh, one named Wes and one named Edna. It establishes their history, that they have a history, number one. It, is, it puts the history into a context because you can tell that, it was, that they were married and that it was rough going because of his drinking. That's in there. Um, it establishes just in this 
back and forth dialogue, which is all, by the way, if you look at the page, it's it's all rendered in one paragraph. All that those, those lines of speech are not separated out into their own paragraphs. Um, you can get a great sense of the tenderness that exists between these people and the vulnerability and the contrition on his part and the reaching for forgiveness on her part. I mean, I feel like I can, I can feel that she is wrestling with herself in her head, realizing this might not work out so well, but, but then she's having an emotional response to him and she really cares about him. And I also think that the, the, the entire arc of the story that then follows is kind of contained in that paragraph in a foggy way. It, it's, it's not all laid out there for the reader, but, but you, you can pretty much know that this is not going to be a happy story. And I think it's amazing that all of that is in there in one paragraph. Can you read something you wrote? It could be something that was tricky or something that changed a lot for the, from, from the first draft. Yeah, well, I was just, the thing that I picked for this is, um, and I don't have the earlier drafts at hand, but there was a spot in the, in the story called Earth Mostly. There's a 60-year-old woman, and she's talking to, she's had to go back and take a driving class, a defensive driving class. And so she's kind of, flirting with the instructor while the class is on break. I wanted to get in her history, some of her history, backstory. And the, you know, the real risk with backstory is, for, for a lot of writers, is that you get mired in it. You start writing a character's backstory, you think, well, you know, if I'm gonna write about, if I'm gonna write about this woman flirting with this man, and I know that she's been married before, I need to say something about what her marriages were like, and then suddenly seven pages have gone by. And you're so far away from the story that you're telling because you're trying to, you know, it's just like when you have a flashback in a movie and the flashback goes on so long that you forget that you're in that other story. And so I had this woman's biography worked out in my head and she had had three marriages and one of them had a terrible ending, one of them had a sloppy ending, and then one of them had a cold ending, her, her three marriages. Now, the thing is, None of this has to do with actually what's going on in the story, but it's important to get it in there. So what I did was I wrote, I just kept writing it out different ways, and it was always too long. And anything I've ever got, got, been really proud of when I write is always something that I've scaled back and scaled back and scaled back, where it started out being five pages and ended up being one paragraph. I'll just read the, the, this tiny little section that walks through all three marriages in, I think, a pretty economical way. This character, Gail, she, she asks the driving instructor, how did you get to be such an expert on driving? Common sense, most of it, he says. I worked at the DMV for years, administered driving tests, even gave the eye exams. Guess you could say I've done it all. You married? He was nervy, but she admired his moxie. She'd been married three times. Her first husband, the orthodontist, had been outwardly chipper and privately gloomy so gloomy that he kept a dank little apartment she didn't even know about on the mainland, where he sealed himself up year, a year after their daughter was born and swallowed 60 Nimbutals. It's not anyone's fault, his note read, but my life has been no picnic. So there was that. Her second husband had been a tax attorney who announced his desire for a separation out of the blue one night and then moved out all the way out to Wyoming, 
where he bought a thousand acres populated with buffalo and got himself named one of Rome and Herd's 50 most awe-inspiring people. As for her third husband, the water park owner, she couldn't even say for sure which one of them left the other. They seemed to inch apart slowly, like continents, until he was living four towns over with a woman half his age. But like the rancher, he paid his alimony. Not married, she said, most decidedly not. You? So that was, that's the passage. And I'm happy with it because it walks through three separate marriages in about 12 lines of, of text. And one of them involves a suicide, you know, something so dark. Um, and what I, was, what I was trying to do with it in terms of its brevity is she's lived with this stuff for so long that for her, th these are almost like sound bites, if that makes sense. She, she's lived with these, with these three separate things for so long that they're not going to be these big narratives that, that live in her head. Uh, and, and so I was trying to, as accurately as possible, render for the reader the way they might drift through her mind in the moment. Obviously, this is a little more elaborate than they would drift through her mind, but if you see what I mean, I, I was trying to not, not linger, not get derailed, not have the reader get too distracted by this. I wanted to just clip through, but that is a whole lot of history contained into, into just a few lines. Right. And it's got to be, what, about 30 years if it's three, three marriages. Um, where do you write? I write at home, often at the kitchen table, sometimes at my desk, but uh, I bounce back and forth if I need to kind of reset my brain. <laughs> and what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, because I work full time and live in New York you know, where to go to the store is a, is a walk down the street and everything is kind of a little journey and adventure. I don't feel like I have the luxury of even thinking about going anywhere to get away from writing because I have almost no time to write. I'm, I'm either going to work or going or, or doing all these things that I have to do uh, or getting back home and then I'm trying to eke out a few hours a week to write. So I wish, I wish that I needed to have some place to go to get away from writing, but it's, it's so hard for me to get to the writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have two or three friends that kind of rotate depending on people's schedules and availability. Um, I have one good friend of mine who is uh, my oldest friend, and we kind of play softball, not literally, with, e with each other, and that I'll read my work to him and... And he'll just sort of let me know what's working and what's not. And then he'll read his work to me. And, and that's as much about hearing it out loud and hearing yourself reading it, read it to someone else, which is a great help in editing your own work. And then two other friends who I uh, will give the pages to, who will be really hard, really tough. And, and I listen to, to all of them. I listen to everybody, but, but I'm, I only show my work to the people I trust. You know, like peop, I, I don't listen to like anybody on the street, <laughs> but uh, if there's a bond of trust and I respect this person's opinion, I will always pay attention to, to what they say. So it's usually those, those three people. And how have you dealt with rejection? I always expected it from the get-go. I started writing when I was about 16, and I always expected it, and it came 
and it still comes. And I just take it as, in this weird way, as encouragement to keep going. And one of the things that helped me with, with understanding rejection from literary magazines, and this might be helpful for other people to hear, is I learned from working at Granta for four years and now working at One Story that if you don't ever hear back from a magazine when you send them their work, it only ever means one thing. It means that they didn't read it. You know, for whatever reason, they didn't get around to reading it or it got lost or it's just in the big pile. It doesn't mean that the work was rejected. And then the other thing I learned is that if a magazine says no to your piece, it really just means it's not the right fit for them right right then. It, it doesn't necessarily speak to your overall quality or, or promise as a writer. And so, I don't know, I, I just, I've always expected to be rejected. So I was never surprised when I was. And what is your favorite word? Avuncular. Avuncular is my favorite word because it, the definition of it is sort of contained in the very sound of it. Because avuncular sort of has the word uncle buried in the middle of it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Patrick Ryan, author of five books, including the short story collection, The Dream Life of Astronauts. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.